Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Bullet from 1968 with my wonderful guest, David Greenfield. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today I have my wonderful brother, David Greenfield, on the show. Hi, David. Hi, Sarah. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Um, So we watched the movie Bullet from 1968. David, I know this was your first time watching it because I told you not to watch it. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. It was actually really good. It was a lot of what I enjoy about movies, I think, you know, with just the very suspenseful, super suspenseful (laughs) uh, movie. And it just kind of keeps you guessing throughout of of, um, what's going to happen next. Yeah. I thought it was really well done. Um, It was one of those movies that I was surprised that I liked because like, I don't know if you know me as your sister at all, but I'm not really into like a macho film. Um, That's like not my thing. So the fact that we have like this awesome suspense film that has like fun action in it and a cool kind of, it's not really a mystery, but the way things play out is really fun and it's not super macho is such a delight. I was beyond delighted the first time I saw this. So I wanted to kind of give it to my viewers as like, oh, you don't like really macho films either. Guess what? This one is fun and not macho and you can enjoy it too. Um, So yeah, I enjoyed that about it. I specifically chose this film for right now um, because, well, (laughs) so we're recording this right after Mother's Day and I don't know if you noticed, but there's that one scene where they go and there's a Mother's Day brunch. Hey, so that's fun. Yeah, I thought that was actually really funny. Right? <laughs> Did you pick this? Because it's like Mother's Day and we're filming right around there. I think I watched it for the first time on Mother's Day or around Mother's Day. And I just kind of associated with that. And then I saw that and I was like, oh, duh, that's why you associate that with this time of year. Um, but I also just, I don't know, I wanted to watch it with you. Uh, I wanted to discuss like the car chase and McQueen and all these things because I feel like we haven't really done that on this show. Uh, I was also just going to say that this movie is not about Mother's Day. I just feel like I wanted to wrap that up as much as we're talking about it. Very much not about Mother's Day. No, it just kind of like fit in with our season. It's been on there to like for my mind to watch for a while. Um, I really enjoy this movie. So it was kind of like a good part of our season that also happened to take place around Mother's Day. So we're doing it around Mother's Day because we're just like Steve McQueen. I'm personally just like Steve. We're very cool, just like Steve McQueen. So this movie starts off with this like crazy opening credit sequence, also with the music of Lalo Schifrin, who is a very famous film composer. 
Um, and he wrote the Mission Impossible theme. He wrote the score for Cool Hand Luke. He was an Argentinian American composer, and you can like hear that in this work. We're later going to be revealed a key plot point this happening during this opening credit sequence that we're only kind of paying attention to because we're distracted by the music and the credits and everything that's going on. So I think that's really cool that already like the credits are subterfuge. Um, so we've got that going on. In the credits, we learn that someone escaped from the mob and his brother is being held culpable, <laughs> which the brother's kind of a red herring, but that doesn't matter. We open to uh, meet Frank Bullet. He's a detective. His partner's waking him up. Frank got to bed at 5 a.m. He was on the job. And now he's being called in again for the case on a weekend. I tell you, it's a Friday. He's tired. And we know Frank is cool. One, because he's wearing cool jammies. So you know he's cool. I'm just saying. Am I right or am I right, David? Are those jammies cool or what? Uh, I, I wasn't paying that close of attention to them, but I will take your word for that. He had cool pajamas, everybody <laughs> at home. Okay. One. Two. We learn a lot about Frank based on what we see in his apartment because this production design is just bananas amazing. Uh, I love the production design of this film. It's one of the reasons I love this film. So what we learn about Frank is he makes things easy for himself, right? Instead of going down to open the front door, he's got a lever that does that for him. His colleague comes up. His colleague's not going to take care of him. His colleague's going to pour himself a glass of orange juice and not bring it to Frank. Don't worry. Frank's got instant coffee next to his bed. He's ready to go. He has a special intercom that he hooked up himself, which you can tell because there's cords that run around to the other side that have made his life easier so he can communicate with outsiders from his bed, which you get the sense all of the things that are happening happen a lot and are pretty regular, that he gets woken up by his partner Delgetti out of a sound slumber. This is a normal occurrence. Anyway, so we meet Frank. We learn these things about him. Also, his apartment is kind of masculine, but not too messy right? He's strong. He's got bricks supporting his bookshelves. I know that was a detail. You're all like, Sarah, why are you telling me this? I just thought it was cool. Bricks are literally supporting his bookshelves. He Jimmy rigged that himself. Um, but there's no mess about. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we get the sense of you. We know you. You're this stylish, resourceful guy. Um, we get all that from the opening of Meeting Bullet. Plus, we get some really, really good early morning acting. I love I Just Woke Up Acting, and Steve McQueen is serving it to you. He is great at I Just Woke Up Acting. Um, you know, that like, I just woke up, my shoulders are hunched, and I'm kind of cold. He gives you that. So, yay, Steve McQueen. I spent way too much time on that opening scene, but I, though, I, was, I was living for the details. This film is all about the details, so I'm just giving you a, a, just a little taste of the film and the experience in the details. Um, so, yes, we've met Frank Bullitt. He's a homicide detective in San Francisco. He is assigned on this case by this slimy man named Chalmers who wants to be a politician. I shouldn't say slimy because he's very elegant, but boy, is he a dick. Um, he really is not trustworthy and he's only looking out for himself and he wants to look good. And the reason he chose Frank on this assignment is because the press likes Frank Bullitt as a detective. Also, I would just want to mention Frank kind of gets along with everybody on every level. He's not a snob, but when he goes to meet Chalmers, he is kind of forced to meet Chalmers at this like fancy ladies gardening event where Chalmers is surrounded by very wealthy women discussing their gardens, saying things like, can you grow roses easily in Salsalito? So he's kind of out of place in this environment, talking to Chalmers, who feels very comfortable in this environment. A key witness, a star witness is 
going to testify against the mafia, which they keep calling the organization because I think they can't say mafia because I think they didn't want to upset the real mafia. I don't know. Or maybe they couldn't say the real mafia. They keep saying the organization and um, he's going to testify against them. Uh, so it's Frank's job to babysit him for the weekend and get him to the, tr to the trial on Monday so he can be a witness. That night, we meet Frank's girlfriend. He goes out to dinner, and uh, there is a great jazz flute band. The jazz flute obviously reminded me of Ron Burgundy, without yeah, question. The the film Anchorman. I wonder if they got that whole plot point from this scene alone. You never know. It's definitely possible, though. Fun fact, one that was a female jazz flautist, which I was like, yes, yes. And it was like a very diverse band. I was super into that quartet. And it was a real quartet. We're gonna get into that later, the aspect of realism in this film. But that was a real jazz quartet that Steve McQueen saw at a restaurant called The Trident in Sausalito. And he booked him for the film. That's really cool. Really cool. Okay, so he goes out to dinner that night when his other, he has like two other cops that work with him and one of them is on the first shift, Del Getty. Uh, and so he meets up with his girlfriend who is an artist i think i'm not really sure what she does she does something with water that needs pipes but is art i don't know what that is but we know that she's intelligent and we like her immediately because not only is she beautiful and played by jacqueline Bissett, she's intelligent also i just found out it's Bissett. i thought it was Bissett, but i recently found out it's like Bissett, like jacqueline Bissett. oh i didn't know that yeah i, I was saying it wrong my whole life I was too. We meet his girlfriend. Uh, she kind of wants to like get into his life more. Like they're both clearly very interested in each other on a deeper level than just attraction. But it's like he's a little bit closed off. He can't share his work with her and that side of his life with her. And that kind of frustrates her. And we get that. Uh, later that night, uh, the man that's being watched, whose name is Johnny Ross, he is acting a little fishy. And the cop that's in charge gets a call uh, saying... Chalmers is downstairs and he wants to come up. And Chalmers is the guy that wants, to, I don't know if he's a senator. They say he's a politician who wants to run for office and he's part of the Senate committee. So I don't know what his exact position is. We just know he wants to be a politician. But this is very fishy because it's 1 a.m. And they're like, why would Chalmers be here at 1 a.m.? This doesn't track. So he says, don't let them up. I'm calling my partner. But while he's doing this, Johnny Ross goes and unhooks the chain on the hotel room door. And all day he's been doing things like turning the music up loud and just being weird, like not behaving like someone who's trying to hide out from, you know, the organization. So uh, the door gets kicked open, two assassins come in and they shoot the cop in the leg and they shoot Johnny Ross in the neck and somewhere else. He gets shot twice, but he really gets shot in the neck and you're like, whoa. And before he gets shot, he's like, wait, but he said... So you're like, oh, something was going on here and something happened that wasn't supposed to happen. Okay. So the two guys with the guns leave. Everybody's taken into the hospital. Bullet's like, this is suspicious. And he tells Chalmers, he's like, look, dude, who did you talk to? Like, did you leak this somehow? He's like, it wasn't my department. What did you do? And Chalmers is like, this is all your fault. <laughs> he's just terrible. And he's like, I'm going to ruin your career. And you're like, oh my God, you asshole. So uh, the guy with the shotgun realizes the job was not completed and he shows up to the hospital and Frank Bullet runs him down and he escapes. Johnny Ross eventually dies, but I don't remember exactly when he dies. I can't remember if that was it was that night or later. And Frank's like, oh, crap. I think that there's a bigger story here. I think something's going on and I want to get his killer. 
And um, I'm not going to be able to do that if Chalmers is like breathing down my neck. So we're going to lose this file somehow. And we're going to pretend that this is just a random John Doe. And I'm going to buy myself a little more time to stay on this case. So that's what they do. And Frank follows the lead. While he's following the lead, what ensues is like the most badass car chase in film history. It's like the first real car chase in Hollywood history, I think. You know, they're really going at these crazy fast speeds. Because I think in the past what they would do is they would like speed up car chases. So they'd be slower and they'd speed them up to make them look more dangerous and it looks a little comedic. This time, this is all like legit. They're really doing this stuff and it's crazy. It like defined what car chases are in Hollywood. And um, what ends up happening is he runs the other two guys off the road after they're trying to shoot him with the same shotgun that killed Johnny Ross. Their car explodes, they're burned to a crisp, they can't be identified. And so it's like his word versus everybody else's word that like these were the guys that killed Johnny Ross. So he's like, look, boss, I got this lead. Let me follow up on it. It's this guy's girlfriend. I want to check on it. And his boss is like, all right, it's Sunday. I'm not going to do anything till Monday. And Chalmers is like, but you've got to. And he's like, shut up, Chalmers. We got till Monday. Calm down. So he follows this lead. They won't give him a car because his car got ruined. But Chalmers, you can tell, got involved. And they're like, nope, no cars today. And he's like, sure. So he invites his girlfriend along. And she she drives him. You know, he doesn't got to drive her car. She's allowed to drive too. So she drives him to where the lead is. And she's got this, like, fun little yellow convertible that looks kind of like a bug but isn't. I don't know cars. And um, and he drives a 1968 Ford Mustang because I looked it up, but I know nothing. I know that it's got a V8 engine and it goes fast. They drive there. He's taken a long time. He goes into the, well, he has gone into the room and we don't know what's going on. We see a bunch of cops show up and we're like, oh crap, what happened? And then we see a guy that looks like Johnny Ross leave. And then Jacqueline Bissett is sitting there like, what happened? What's going on? This is taking too long. So she follows where all the cops are going and when she gets there, she sees the body of a dead woman brutally strangled in a really, you know, horrifying way. And she has this awful, like, gut-wrenching reaction to this violence, which is like a very normal human reaction. I'm sure if I saw a body that looked like that that was real on the floor, I would be freaking out too. So Bullet follows her and they drive home. But this time he's driving because she's, you know, freaking out because she just saw a horribly strangled dead body. And uh, she's like, oh my god i like get why you couldn't talk to me about your work before but like dude you work in a sewer and it's really messed up that you see this stuff every day like how are you going to keep this from affecting you i don't see how you can and she kind of has like the what's our future conversation right then and there and he's like well our future starts now so um so yeah that we're not totally sure what's going to happen with them but she finally like sees what he's dealing with and what the duality of lives that he lives like the one he lives when he's with her and like what he has to see every day in his business because she sees how coolly he's handling it because she goes there she's losing her mind but he's business as usual with this dead body there because that's his job he's homicide anyway so um the final stretch of the movie is that we figure out that johnny ross did not die this other guy who looks like johnny ross died it was al rennick i think is his name and dorothy rennick it was him and his wife they were going to go off to europe together Um, potentially with Johnny Ross. We don't really know. But Johnny Ross planned this whole thing because he stole $2 million from the mafia and he was, sorry, from the organization. 
And he was going to run away to Europe and he was going to steal Bob Rennick's identity to do it because they look just, they look alike. And the reason the opening credits were so confusing is because they constantly mask his face, not with a mask, but with like the credits. You're having a really hard time seeing him and he's in the dark. So you even as a viewer can't tell Johnny Ross and Al Rennick apart. So that's so what it's, why it's so clever because even viewers, like we've been watching this whole time and we couldn't tell them apart. We didn't know there was a switch. But at this point, even though he's a star witness, Johnny Rossi has murdered several people. So now he's just a flat out murderer and he's going to try to leave the country. Uh, we, they think he's, he took this passport and this ticket to get to Rome, but he tricked everybody because when they go to the airport with like no backup, by the way, and it's Sunday night, this has been a whole weekend. When they do that to pick up uh, Johnny Ross, who I want to call Al Rennick, but he's not Al Rennick. When they go to pick him up at the airport, you guys, he switched flights at the last minute and he was going to leave on an earlier flight to London and they just figured it out. So they go, they run to the flight. And oh boy, since there's only two of them, one stays at the open door and the other one goes on the plane. And the one that goes on the plane is Steve McQueen. And you're yelling at the screen, tell all the passengers to sit down. Ah, cause the passengers are getting up and leaving the plane, but he doesn't want to like stress anybody out, you know? But anyway, you guys, Johnny Ross gets off the plane from the back. He jumps down onto the tarmac and the planes are all still flying and moving. And it's no big deal that there's people running around on the tarmac. So he's running around and Steve McQueen's running after him. And Johnny Ross tries to shoot Steve McQueen, but he misses. And then he somehow gets back in the airport. They both run back in the airport. And Steve McQueen's looking out for him and he can't see him. Finally, he spots him. He's trying to leave. But as he's leaving, another cop spots him. They like trap him in the t between two doors and they shoot him. And all the people in the airport freak out. And Steve McQueen covers his body with a coat. <laughs> and then, and then um, it's like showing footage of later that day. And he goes home and we see that Jacqueline Bissett's car is there. And we see that she's sleeping there. And he like is washing his hands and looking at his own face in the mirror. And he's like, how do you reconcile those two parts of yourself? He just like killed a guy that was a killer. And now he's, he's come home and he's like, it's like he's washing that part off of himself. Um, and that's the end of Bullet. And that was the longest synopsis I've ever done. And it took a, a really long time. I'm sorry, David. You, you got every part of it. You got every part. Can I just say though, that ending that I just described, to me, it was like this complete, beautiful, intelligent ending, commenting on him as a person, but that wasn't the real ending at all. <laughs> if you look closely, um, he's wearing a different shirt. He's wearing a shirt that he wore from an earlier scene. And it's because the original ending of that film was supposed to be that shot where the priest is like giving last rites and the door is slamming shut that says um, no exit. Doesn't it say no exit or no way out or something like that? Yeah, yeah, I right? think so. That was supposed to be the end of the film, but they said it kept falling flat. So Frank Keller, who won an Oscar for this film, he won for best editing, not just because of the car chase scene, but because of all the work he did throughout. He was incredibly inventive. That last scene came from earlier in the film. People wanted closure about the girlfriend and they wanted to know like Steve McQueen's arc, his arc, as we had talked about earlier. I mean, it's like, he lives his job, he wants something more, but he doesn't know how to reconcile those two parts of himself. And the film, the way it ends, I think deals with that. I think the other way around, it doesn't really deal with that or close that door. So it's so fascinating to me that that was not the original ending and was just like a random takeaway that they took out from earlier in the piece. It was supposed to be after um, Johnny Ross dies. Because you'll notice he's wearing that same maroon 
sweater he was wearing in the scene when he was chasing the guy with the shotgun, the the first assassin. I did not notice that, like, but I liked the way that they ended it. They had to have something with the ending, right? Because after essentially the uh, the two detectives shoot Johnny, they had to have some sort of an ending. They had to finish that arc with Kathy because she's sitting there wondering about their future, and then it would have been awkward if we never saw her again because then he would have kind of wondered what her purpose in the movie was, or I guess she had to drive him in that one scene. Uh, but I think it helped that they they added something there at the end because they needed you needed an ending. There needed to be something with them for an ending. I think with him, again, dealing with what his arc was, like finding this reconciliation between the two parts of himself and like going back to his regular life after dealing with what he has to deal with as a homicide detective. So yeah, I thought it was really, I think it's a really beautiful ending. And until I, I heard an interview with Frank Keller where he pointed that out, I don't know that I would have noticed it if Frank Keller had not mentioned it, um, especially with the costume, it being two different costumes. <laughs> um, no but I, yeah. I really like that because that was like a problem they solved because a lot of what was going on with this film when they were making it was uh, the script was constantly changing. They were doing a lot of rewrites on the fly. Um, so a lot of things had to be fixed kind of in post or during editing. And so the fact that we get this really awesome film out of it, I think is like the magic of movie making. You know, they found a way to make all the pieces fit. Oh, totally. Um, 100%. Let's like so you mentioned Jacqueline Bissett. I think uh, other actresses had turned down the role because it was too small. And if you interview her, I think I saw an interview with her like a year ago, uh, but it was like in today's world where she was like, "Yeah, I felt like my character maybe only existed to make him look interesting." But I think yes, a little bit. Like yes, her character was not really flushed out. But I do at least like that they made her character intelligent and curious and. There were like there were things that I think made her character strong, but like yes, her character could have been more fully fleshed out. Um, and yeah. I think her character wasn't just there to make him desirable. I think it was there; she was there as a catalyst of like for him for his arc. Yeah. yeah. So to have want something more than just your job, to want something else, to want something like deeper, having a meaningful connection. <laughs> um, well, you were talking about like actresses that turned down the role. Was this like? Did they know this was going to be a, like a big movie? Was this the intention of this movie to be a blockbuster? Was it? I don't know that it was the intention. It's a Warner Brothers film that was made with Steve McQueen's production company. Uh, I think, what's it called? Seven Arts or something like that is his production company. Yeah. So he produced this and he made a bunch of gambles on this picture. This is what Ben Minkowin said on TCM. Um, (laughs) But all of his gambles ended up paying off. So like he knew he wanted a really awesome car chase. And so he had seen Peter Yates' film, um, The Robbery, which has a car chase in it. It was like, I want that guy, even though he had never made an American film before and had only done one film prior. And he wanted it to be shot all on location in San Francisco. Yeah, so he just made a couple like gambles with stuff that he wasn't sure they were going to pay off, and they paid off real well. When I first started watching it, that was one of my first questions for this movie, actually, was about San Francisco. Because I was like, for the time period, I didn't know if they would actually film that on location. But clearly, it looked like, I mean, San Francisco is very distinct. You know, what? You know, it's very undulated, right? Up and very hilly, up and down, windy. Uh and obviously they filmed it like that. You could see the bay. And I thought that was cool that they filmed that on location. So cool. Like, and it really adds to the film too, because you get a lot of layers to it. Like last time we talked about the Naked City, which was mostly shot on location in New York, which was a big deal in the mid forties when it was released. This is like 20 years later. And I still think shooting on location is insanely cool. I, I want more movies to be shot on location because yeah. um, it adds such a texture to it. And it gives 
so much variety of what you see because it's like they didn't just shoot in the fancy schmancy places like with the rose ladies the horticulture club or whatever they were you see like the grittiness you see you know you get embarcadero and you get um when it, when he goes to visit his informant and they're in front of like a strip joint like you get kind of a lot of the different <laughs> aspects plus you get these gorgeous shots of the bay <laughs> like I, there's yeah there's a lot of cool I stuff. will be honest speaking of that scene there was like important stuff coming out of that scene and I was like why are they having this important scene right in front of like <laughs> like these pictures of like naked women right behind them yeah. I had to rewind it once because I was like wait what wait <laughs> This is we important. need to know that it was a seedy interaction. And yes. I guess the way that you show something is seedy is you do it in front of a burlesque house, I guess. I don't know. I thought that I was know. funny. I will say not to get ahead with the car chase because I'm sure Let's we're going to cover it. that. Because this is it. This is before I even saw this movie. If you were like, Sarah, what do you know about this movie? I would have been like Steve McQueen, car chase. So that's like yeah. what this movie's famous for. Yeah, I was going to say, because we're talking about San Francisco, one of the things you could tell and how you could also tell it was on location was the car chases and how they were going you know, up all these hills. But they had the camera a lot of times in the car, like right from the windshield. So you're going up these hills. And I think this adds to the suspense of the film. But you, you're almost yeah. wondering, like, is somebody going to come ram them at any moment? Because you're, you're seeing it from the standpoint of I'm going uphill or I'm going downhill or I'm like right from the car. And then obviously they have the outside shots as well, where you can see the cars and the, the rubber, you know, burning on the road. And it was a really cool scene. I had never seen that yeah. before. I heard that there was a car, like a car, huge yeah. car chase in it, but to actually watch it, I thought that was a, just as good of a chase filmed what 50 years ago as you see in, yeah. you know, today. I agree. Well, cause it's all real. It looks real, you know, 100%. it's like not faked, but okay. So here's a couple things. First of all, Ben Mankiewicz says that he likes the French connection car chase better than this one. I disagree with Ben Mankiewicz. I like this one better. Um, <laughs> this one makes me less physically nauseous cause the other one is too much of what you were describing. I think French connection is too much from the driver's seat. I like that this has the mix, but here's, I'm so glad you brought this up. What we, when we talked about Vertigo on this podcast, we talked about how he's constantly driving up and down the streets of San Francisco and it's supposed to be like hypnotic, right? They, they add all the, this excess to put us in this hypnotic mood. The reason we get all of this extra footage on the streets of San Francisco was to make the scene longer. So wait, I'm gonna read some stuff to you about this or tell you about it a little bit. So um, what's really cool <laughs> about this is, for, as we mentioned, um, Frank Keller won the Oscar for editing for Bullet. And part of the reason was the brilliance of what he did with the car chase scene. So he made the scene feel twice as epic and be twice as long because what he did was he took the footage. So you'll notice first we st you, were, you were mentioning it. We start off from the perspective of the people driving, right? We see that perspective. They used uh, double footage. So it was like the pr what they shot on the inside was the same as the exterior shots. But he made it look like it was a longer chase by... Um, going back and forth between the two shots, which I think is so smart. I have no idea that it's the same chase. Did you? I had no that idea. It was from, that it was the same footage. It, it, that, to me, that's incredible <laughs> that he yeah. could make a whole like chase scene out of, out of the same footage, out of, you know, the car just doing the same thing. And we don't know it because we're getting interior and exterior of the same thing that's being spliced together to look like a bigger chase, which is awesome. Um, so we've got that. He said, we have to stay with McQueen to get a roller coaster effect. So let's stay with him for both sh both shots. And then they use the same shot twice. Um, so they do it once from the inside, once from the outside. And then that's how they would show it to us, the audience. They would show us the inside first and then the outside. So, okay. Peter Yates was saying that Steve McQueen did all of his own driving. 
Um, and even Frank Keller, like when he did an interview in the 70s, was like, yeah, he did most of his driving. Um, and just like a stunt driver did the ditch part and the gas station, but McQueen did everybody else. Okay, so apparently that's not 100% true. There were three stuntmen involved. Um, Bill Eakins was one of them. Lauren Janes was another. They did the McQueen driving stuff. And then Bill Hickman did um, the black Mustang driving. And apparently he was also the stunt driver in The French Connection. So there's a tie in between the two movies. So those are like the stuntmen that were involved. Um, and also Ben Minkowitz said it took four weeks to shoot. But uh, Frank Keller said that it only took two weeks. So I don't know. There's the truth well, is somewhere in the middle. Three weeks. Uh, so I mentioned the ending was earlier in the picture. And if you look closely, the wardrobe doesn't quite match. Okay, so oh, this is another big thing that happened with the um, the shooting. So Frank Keller, another reason he got the Oscar was because he saved the day. So the explosion that happens at the gas station with the black Mustang that goes off the road with like the hitman and the driver, the driver who looks like Mo Green from The Godfather, just by the way. It's not him, but it looks like him. So it goes off the road and it's supposed to hit the gas station and explode. But the car, like the stunt car, tripped the wire that set off the explosion too soon. And it was being filmed from four angles. So four angles got a shot of the car hitting the wire. Like the gas station exploded before the car hit it. Oh. So they have this blown shot and they were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? What do we do? So this is where Frank Keller saved the day. He remembered that there was like a zoomed in shot that happened that was going towards the gas station. So he's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get a cut of the car. Like we're going to cut midair as the black Mustang is headed towards the gas station. Then go into this zoom shot of the explosion. So it's zoomed in super tight and we just see the explosion. And then we pull back out and we see like the car and the explosion being like together. You can still kind of see though, I don't know if it's the black Mustang or not, but there's a second explosion and it looks like the black Mustang hits that to explode. I was confused about like where that factored in, but um, he basically was like, yeah, I was the hero for the day because I managed to make that scene work when there was a huge accident and they didn't know how they were gonna reshoot it. Um, and it kind of looks like, not even that it's a zoom, I think it looks like you're from the perspective of that car. Because what we've been watching, like that first person perspective kind of for a while. So when they switch to that, for one minute, you feel like you're the driver of the black Mustang and you don't totally notice that you're not. So yeah, that was a really brilliant cut to make up for that mistake. And then um, the last little fun tidbit from set about that whole car chase scene was when Steve McQueen watched a cut of the film, he felt like the car sounds weren't really accurate, like the sound wasn't good enough. So they re-recorded the whole drive with the sound guy, like all up and down those streets with that speed. And it made the sound guy sick. He was throwing up <laughs> because <laughs> of what Steve McQueen made him reshoot. Um, so I think that was great. Especially with the, like, the up and down and everything and all the windy roads and everything. I can only imagine. So yeah, I thought those are all like fun tidbits about like the making of that car chase scene. I will say, I think we just learned an important lesson, which is that you can never have enough cameras on what you're shooting. Yeah. Because <laughs> you never know which one you need. But it was just like such an accident that happened. And they were like, oh no, we, like what do we do? It's exploded. Oh, that's terrible. And I'm sure they don't have, it's not like you have like a bunch of extra gas station looking no. buildings you can just film on. But yeah, that's why Frank Keller wins yeah. the Academy Award because he finds a solution. The solution works really well. No one would ever notice. Um, so that's all really cool. Way to go, Frank Keller, on that one. 
Yeah. Um, another cool thing about this movie, I mean, beyond the car chase is like the realism, which we were mentioning during the car chase, which again, so cool because they're really going as fast as like you think they're going. <laughs> like they're, yeah. they're really, you're scared for them. This is really dangerous looking. Um, so like there's the realist element of the car chase, but like the other like realist elements that were lauded in this piece were, we mentioned being shot in San Francisco, and we mentioned the jazz band as well, the real live jazz quartet that really was a jazz quartet, mm -hmm. crushing that jazz flute. <laughs> um, but the doctors in the hospital scene, they really shot in the hospital, and those were real doctors. Really? They really knew what they were talking about. Yeah, with the exception, um, there's obviously like the element of racism in this that becomes like a plot line, how we know Chalmers is an asshole because he's being racist. Um, but the doctor of uh, Johnny Ross is a black doctor, giving us very much like no way out Sidney Poitier vibes. And um, you can tell he's a very good doctor. <laughs> and yeah. um, him and Steve McQueen have like a really cool rapport. But he was the only one, I was gonna say, he's the only one that was an actor that wasn't a doctor. When they had just the doctors, they would try to do like all of the lingo they could get and all of the real situations they could get. And even with the actor that's a doctor, to me that felt really real, but they said they couldn't improvise as much because he didn't really know the jargon. So they couldn't like just say stuff or just do what they might have done because he was the right. only actor like in the bunch. Why would they? I mean, I understand they want realism, but why did they need to hire like actual uh, like doctors and nurses and everything rather than just have actors, but maybe have somebody on set that knows the jargon? I don't know. I think this was a different time in filmmaking, right? So we're coming out of like the 50s and the 40s, which was all kind of like more produced stuff on sound stages, you know? Realism is more of a new concept. And I think they just wanted to make everything feel as real as it could. And I, th those scenes do feel real. There's so much overlap. There's so much procedure. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. I just, I was yeah. curious why they would, uh, why they would choose that route. But I mean, it makes sense if you really want realism to be a part of it. Cause the movie, yeah. that is one of the things I will say for that movie is it definitely felt real. Like we were saying, the cars chasing, every, everything felt very real and, and you don't always get that from movies. Sometimes you just, or even TV shows or anything else, you just yeah. get like, it's clearly made in Hollywood or wherever, but this clearly was not, this was really well done. And I think I'd mentioned to you, I, this movie is really subtle too. It's very detail oriented, but kind of, it can be slow. It's not super dialogue heavy um, because it's trying to portray things in a realistic light. And it shows a lot of Steve McQueen figuring things out and thinking, <laughs> right? And so I was like, David, I don't know if, you know, it might be a little slow. I'm just warning you, it, you know, it, it might feel slow because of that. But I don't know. I think it just adds a richness to it. This movie, very detail oriented, very beautifully done. One thing I would, well, two things actually. One is I agree from the standpoint of it's not a super long movie. I mean, it runs under two hours. So even though it does you do get those like suspenseful or like the little, the, the small buildups to things because it's not a super long movie. I don't think it's as noticeable yeah. that it's like, you know, it's not like it's like close to three hours and it's like slowly, you know, slowly building. Um, but the other thing too is uh, I remember you telling me that going into this movie and at the very beginning as I'm watching it to go back quickly to that opening credit scene. Yes. Um, I was getting so annoyed with that credit scene at the beginning because I couldn't tell what was going on. So yeah. I was like, Why do they have their credits like this? I can't see anything. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's probably what Sarah told me that there's something going on that I'm supposed to know, or there's something I should be paying attention to that I'm missing because of these credits. But now it yeah. all makes sense to me. 
right? Because I think when I first saw it too, I was like, oh, it's a caper. These are such capery credits. Like, <laughs> oh, they're going, the words are going that way and this way, and they're becoming the next picture. Wow. Like, there's a lot going on. <laughs> it, it almost felt like somebody who just like learned how to use, you know, like PowerPoint or something. And like, they know how to put like, like, oh, look at all this cool stuff we can do with credits. And it's like, what are they doing? Just give me normal credit. But it's funny because you kind of forget about it until you see Johnny Ross get out of the taxi and be like, I'm Johnny Ross. Is there any mail for me? You know, you're like, you're kind of confused about like, you don't even remember it happened. You're so focused on Frank Bullitt and getting to know him that until you see Johnny Rossi again, or Johnny Ross, I want to call him Rossi, but that's not his name. Johnny Ross. Until yeah. you see him, who isn't really him. And I do think, yeah, I do think it's just to distract you. I think it's part of the story. They don't want you to know too much. Not to like move ahead a ton, but there is something that's been on my mind and I, I would love to chat about it. Go for it. Why did he unlock the room, the door uh, to that room? I mean, he was essentially killed. I, I don't know why he was helping people kill him. He thought it was a plan. So this is just a normal car salesman from Chicago who thought he was going to make a buck or two and flee the country with his wife. He was not clued in on the whole plan. Like, I feel like Johnny Ross told him, this is the plan. This is what you're going to do. You're just going to let him in and you're all going to leave together or whatever. You know, like there was a plan right. in place. He doesn't understand that he is the plan. He's the one that's going to get killed. He thinks okay. he's doing what he's supposed to do because he was following that checklist, right? The checklist that told him to go to the hotel, which is how he got made, which is how they were. he was marked, right? Someone that worked for the organization was like, there he is. I see Johnny Ross. He's here in Chicago. Uh, not Chicago. He's San here in San Francisco. So that was how he got noticed by the organization. And then he made the call to Chalmers, right? Mm -hmm. So he thinks he's part of this like bigger plan, but the plan is literally to kill him and his wife so that the other person can steal his identity and get away. <laughs> like, right. And everyone would have thought Johnny Ross was dead if Frank Bullitt wasn't good at his job. That makes more sense because everything, I was trying to piece that in my head, why he, why he did all that if the guy was just gonna come in and kill him. Yeah. But obviously he didn't understand. It's funny that you brought that up because there's a part that I don't understand at the end that I've kind of reasoned for myself, but I'm like, mm, I don't know. At the very end, when um, Johnny Ross is trying to leave the airport, Bullet sees his partner and hides from him. And I'm like, why? <laughs> I don't get why you're hiding from your partner. Is it because you want to lay low? That's all I can think is that he wants to lay low so Johnny Ross doesn't see. You know, that's all I can think. He doesn't want anyone to know him. Do you think that was just a like a strange use of the camera there? Maybe they like they were they pointed something out accidentally they didn't mean to. No. Or do you think there was a reason for that? I think there is. I think that because he's chasing Johnny Ross, he sees Delgetti, and Delgetti's looking around looking for him, and he goes <gasps> and he like turns and hides. So you get the impression that he's hiding from Delgetti and the other officer. Part of me wonders if it's because he knows Johnny Ross has a gun and he doesn't want him to be like crazy in a room of civilians. That could be one. And two, I, I just, I wonder if he thought it would be easier to not get anyone else involved because he's got his mark. I don't know. But that confuses me, why, why he's hiding from Del Getty at the end. Maybe he thought Del Getty would, would blow his... Uh, yeah, blow his cover. Blow his cover or something. The guy doesn't know where he is or that he's even in the room at that point. I yeah. think he's just kind of, you know, Johnny Ross just kind of trying to sneak out and he may not know that Bullet didn't want them to know where he was and he didn't want to, he didn't know that Bullet was going to be there. And maybe he just wanted to make sure that he got his guy and nobody else got in his way. I mean, that's, that's all I can think. Because it seems like you'd want more help catching this guy, but... Again, this guy was armed, so I don't know. Gotta be careful. It was in an airport. 
And I like that this whole time he's trying to keep everything quiet. And in the end, it's just like the most public place it could possibly be for this yeah. guy's killing. Like, By the way, a very crowded airport, may I add. A very crowded airport. And they all go on with their lives. Yeah. At first, they're like, oh, no. And then you can hear someone being like, oh, I think he's a cop. And they just like walk away from the bleeding out body. And you're like, all right. No flights were canceled today. No. Everything's... The security back then, <laughs> even just they were like, you check in at the gate, like yeah. all that stuff. Well, did you like when they when over the over the loudspeaker, they're going to the flight and they're like, oh, for this. And it was all like one sentence. It was for this Pan-American flight. Uh, no smoking beyond this point. Everything about that sentence. I was like, none of that exists anymore. The airline, the smoking, none of it. But, oh, by the way. Did you notice the point when there was the motorcycle that crashed? How? Do any idea how they filmed that one? Because that I had don't. to hurt. But I like that they show Frank Bullitt stop. So what they keep showing with Frank Bullitt is that he cares about regular average people, right? That's why we're rooting for him as opposing to Chalmers, who cares only about himself and his political ambition. So Frank stops the chase to make sure that motorcycle guy is okay and taken care of before he continues. Yeah. I was like, oh, I see, I see what they did there. That's some character development mid-chase. <laughs> like, okay. But yeah, he yeah. fully slides on the side of his motorcycle and it like skids and there's smoke and stuff. I don't know. That had to be very painful for a stunt driver. Yeah. And that's a practical effect, not CGI. Like that really yeah. happened. Someone really did yeah. that. Yeah, that. I'm glad you brought that in too. Um, I think all of the driving was incredibly impressive and terrifying, you know? the way yeah. that they did all of it. Just thinking about the fact that somebody jumped off of a road, leapt midair and crashed into something and that's in a movie and that person really did that, you know? Yeah, and they apparently lived. And they, they lived. <laughs> Although that was pretty, they did show some more like gory things. We see their bodies catch in flames. I mean, it's clearly not really them. It's probably like wax or something. I don't know what, what their doubles were made out of. But they're on fire. Whatever they used. Yeah. And then the strangling thing. And then the, the semi-naked ladies at the strip club and the pictures behind them. So they had some suggestive things for 1968 that wouldn't have been seen really a lot before. I was wondering how that uh, how that all played. Obviously, audiences probably didn't care, I guess. But I could imagine audiences would be a little back in the 60s. I don't know. Maybe I, it's just the way I think of people from the 60s and before. But like, like almost more prudish. Like, I wonder if they how they felt about a movie like that. I don't think they're as prudish as we think they were. That's what's funny is like, this is after 1967 where it's like Bonnie and Clyde and Cool Hand Luke and um, oh, The Graduate. So like sex is finding its way into movies and the code is ending. So I feel like this all feels really fresh, but people are like ready for it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they're like, we've been waiting for this, the gore and the people on fire. They've been waiting for it. The new wave. I do want to talk about like, the production design of this, the production design and how this film is photographed, which are two different things. But I feel like I mentioned earlier, to me, this film is all about the details. And a lot of what's gorgeous about it are the things that combine to make these images, right? So we've got the great production design. Um, I wrote down the production designer's name. It's um, He's not listed as a production designer here. He's listed as an art direction person here, which means he got paid less than he would have as a production designer, which is messed up, but true. It's Albert Brenner. And he also did Beaches and Pretty Woman and The Turning Point and Backdraft and Mr. Saturday Night and The Princess Diaries 2, A Royal Engagement. So I was like, of course I love your production design. It's rosy and gorgeous and I'm into it. He didn't do the first Princess Diaries, only the second? No, just oh. the second one, which is also great, I think, in my humble opinion. I thoroughly enjoyed it. 
Okay, so I saw a print of this film last year at NewBev that was like gorgeous. It's like a very creamy looking film. And the production design is so smart. Like I was mentioning all the details in his apartment earlier. That's all on point. The photography is gorgeous. The the shots that we're getting, the way that everybody, when we introduce them, it's usually seen through something interesting. There's like usually some interesting detail on the set that they are shooting through to give it texture and it's awesome. So they've thought about like all these little things. Um, and I do wanna shout out, we mentioned Lalo Schifrin earlier. The score is really great. You can hear like the Argentinian feel through like certain instruments that you're like, I'm not even sure what that is, but that sounds like a giant. Uh, okay, remember when we used to go to the Hands-On Museum and there was that giant tube? Remember that, that, you, that made sounds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, that instrument, I was like, what is that? That's what that sounds like. He like adds that to a traditional score and it's really cool and it gives it like depth and dimension and it's interesting and it's intriguing. Yes. Anyway, I would so agree. love that score, love all those things. And then I also want to mention, this leads us to another like aspect of the design, which is the costume design. And the costume design was done by Theodora Van Runkle, who did, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, very stylish, who did The Godfather Part Two, New York, New York, the best little whorehouse in Texas, which I thoroughly enjoy. Um, but the style in this film is very cool, especially Steve McQueen's style, because he is like really on point in this. He looks great. He's got really trendy but it's classic it's like at the forefront kind of style and apparently what she did was she was dating her boyfriend at the time i think was european and so she just took his style and put it on steve mcqueen and it made all of these looks and all of this movie and i love that he he looks trendier than you would expect for a police officer in many cases yeah. he looks chic he looks so cool. Yeah, well, like, what was he wearing there at the end? Like, he had, like, the leather, was it a leather jacket that he had on? He had, like, the black, you know, like, and that turtleneck. I don't know what he was wearing. It was wearing, blue. But... David, I'm sorry you're ruining it. No. I'm okay, you know what, guys, <laughs> don't listen to me. I'm I, I'm clearly not a fashion He was uh... wearing a blue turtleneck sweater, which looked fabulous, a brown blazer over that, and a Burberry rain jacket. I believe it was Burberry. I don't know for a fact. Over that. Although he did lose his rain jacket on the tarmac and somehow magically got it back for that last scene. So I'm glad they found it out there at the airport. Um, but that's what he was wearing in the last scene because you don't normally see cops wearing blue turtleneck sweaters or like maroon jumpers and looking fly. And he does. It's true. I, it's very, I was, I was very uh, taken aback, not taken aback, but just it was unexpected what he was wearing versus what you would expect yeah. for a cop. And I kind of like that, though. I like that yeah. it was. Well, and one could argue it was a way of his character reaching out a little bit, right? Because he wants connection in the outset. People who maybe care about fashion care about how people perceive them. You know, they want to express themselves, but they want to be perceived by other people, right? So it's like his way of reaching out a little bit outside of his cop bubble, I think. Plus him and Jacqueline Bissett looked so cute together because they were both so fashionable. Ah! even though it should be said she is 14 years younger than him at the time of the shooting of this film. Oh, I do want to mention too, plot-wise, something I think is interesting about this movie, so I'm talking about how I enjoy that it's slightly feminist. And to me, what makes it feminist is that it's like, first of all, he's not macho. He's willing to listen. He looks at the points of view of people around him, and he's never like throwing his weight around in any real way. Like, there's not a lot of ego there. His actions are usually integrity-based, and he observes things. So I like that when he goes to her work and she's like, 
look up this project. He can like admire her, her brilliance and he can't do it himself. You know, she's asking him questions. And he's like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I like that, that they show that he likes her, not just because she's gorgeous, but because there's like, he, he likes her brain essentially. And then, um, when they're out to dinner and they have that moment where we see him observing her and the way that he looks at her, he looks at her the way she's appreciating the music. He, he's constantly observing her in that way where it's not just that like she's a sexual object that I'm totally going to nail later. He's observing her like, oh, I like that she's listening to, he's trying to like figure her out a little bit as a human. Um, <laughs> I like that fact that he lets her drive, which is lame, but true. Um, although Jacqueline Bissett said she was really scared. Sorry, Jacqueline Bissett said she was scared that day because she was like, I was driving Steve McQueen that I didn't want to look stupid. He's like the king of cars. What do you even do? And so she said, if you notice, she drives away really fast when she drops him off at that one hotel and she drives away. She's like, I speed away because I wanted to look really cool for like one minute. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. She's like, it wasn't necessary, but I was just driving Steve McQueen and I wanted to look cool for a second. <laughs> Um, I forget the other reasons I thought this was feminist. I'm just riffing at this point. There were several reasons that I had. I mean, it's their relationship is sexually based, but it's like there's, I don't know, he doesn't expect anything of her, but he also doesn't treat her like she's just there for sex. Like there's clearly a relationship there. Yeah. He's very, he's a very observational guy too, to your point. Yeah. He's obviously somebody who that's part of his job, right? Is to, yeah. is to be able to see what's going on, be able to comprehend very quickly what's happening in a situation, be able to figure out what to do next or, or where to go next. And I think you're right, even in his own personal life, you're seeing him be very observational. And That's why he notices when she's losing, when she sees the dead body and loses it, we, we observe him observing her again, you know? Because earlier we're observing how he observes her and like, okay, she's really enjoying this. This is really cool. And he sees her falling apart and he's like, oh my God, I now see myself through her eyes whoa, I see my behavior, I see her behavior, I see how she's handling this. Oh, I'm seeing this whole picture clearly right now, you know? So you get that sense too from it. Um, but he doesn't judge her either for reacting that way because she has a very normal reaction and there's no like, you're a woman and women can't handle this and you faint it. Like, he doesn't say like, yeah, that was fucked up, but there's the implication of he understands what she's seeing and why she's seeing it and it makes sense and she's allowed to feel that way. Yeah, you know? I will say that is all accurate. My other question though. <laughs> yeah is why was any outsider allowed in a crime scene? Great point. Well, she did just like wander in and they did know each other. <laughs> but yes, normally that does not seem like it would be allowed. Um, I also did want to point out there's the scene where she's like famously like wearing one of his shirts and eating breakfast. And I just realized that she offers, she's like, oh, do you want anything for breakfast? Do you want any coffee? Cause she was making it for herself. She's like, do you want anything? Delgetti didn't do that earlier. Remember when Delgetti got there and he like poured the orange juice and Bullet was like, are you gonna give that to me? No. And his girlfriend's like, hey, do you want anything? I'm just gonna sit here and eat this cereal and get coffee. And he's like, I forget if he says yes or no, but I was like, oh, she offered it to him and Delgetti didn't. <laughs> he found a nice person. Yeah, I will point out uh, also, yeah. outside of the fact that, yeah, Delgetti was- Fun, just, but like- <laughs> I don't know why, I don't know how you just walk into somebody's house and just take their orange juice and yeah. but. <laughs> Uh, clearly, there there must be good friends, right? Yeah. Uh, but no, but um, there there is a scene where where Steve McQueen uh, goes to the grocery store. Yeah. And you see him getting like a I don't know eight frozen dinners, TV seven, dinners. Seven. I counted. It's seven. Oh, did you? <laughs> of course, you did. He did six, and then he put one on top. It was like seven, seven days in the week, seven frozen. Dinners. I just thought that was interesting that they 
chose to to show that from his life like you know just i guess kind of showing that i don't know i don't know what the whole purpose of that was i feel like the movie is trying to show us that there's no separation in his life he really lives for his job he's on the job seven days a week it's showing what his life is what it potentially could be with someone else like how it could open up but like it's just like just showing us a little flavor of life but yeah i think it shows us that maybe he's not really taking care of himself. <laughs> maybe yeah. that's not really healthy. <laughs> it's just it was a ton of TV dinners. I'm sorry, I, I think it's really funny you counted that because that was something that I noticed and I, I thought was interesting that he was just grabbing a bunch of TV dinners. Well, because he did it so systematically. He went, he picked up two at a time and went one, two, three, and then scooped up an extra and put it on top. So I was like, oh, they're showing, this is a part of his routine. This is a regular thing in his life, you know? Yeah, I like that. He also did have a spider plant in his house, which I was like, oh, he's taking care of something, even if it's just a plant. He wants to grow. And then when she was talking to him about their future and she's holding that flower, I was like, oh, we want something natural is here. We want to grow. We've got plants and flowers. Symbolizing with plants and flowers. Yep. And I know I read way too much into this. I bet people are watching this like, Sarah, you're taking this way out of proportion. And I'm like, maybe I am, but isn't it fun? Isn't it fun? I wouldn't be surprised though, because I feel like a lot of times you hear about these movies and all the stuff people do to, to, to show their point or like they're trying to make their point as many ways as possible. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if that was the, the reason for it. Well, and again, they show us in the beginning how efficient he is, how he doesn't want to waste time. He likes being efficient. But when he's with his girlfriend, there's less of that. I liked the scenes with Jacqueline Bissett, even though I do agree that the part is not fully flushed out. Where it's like she's like your kind of manic pixie dream girl where she looks perfect and has a perfect job and isn't like a real person, you know, but neither is he. So it's a movie. You know? Yeah, I would also say that the purpose of this movie, really, they try to stick as much as they can to trying to solve this murder slash, I guess, I don't know if they're trying to solve this murder as much as they're trying to figure out what's going on, like, and make, you know, trying to catch the guy who committed the murder and yet also trying to kind of realize something isn't right here. We need to like, they needed to spend their time on that. And I think to your point, uh, Kathy, her purpose was to kind of help with, with uh, Frank Bullitt's arc. And establish him outside of his profession and yeah. give him some sort of like real life. Yeah, I don't think it would have made sense for her part to be much bigger. I want to make sure we also talk about Chalmers' character. Chalmers is played by Robert Vaughn. Bullet represents integrity and Chalmers represents like inauthenticity. What's the opposite of integrity? Like what's the opposite of authentic? Like phoniness for your own gain. Yeah. Um, and they are two opposite sides of the spectrum. And I think Bullet exists to say the things we've always wanted to say to people that are inauthentic. You know those people that want to be powerful, that will do anything to be powerful? That's Chalmers. And that they only care about themselves and they don't have any integrity or honor. Frank is the opposite of that, and he will not play with Chalmers. And Chalmers is going to crush his career if he does not, if Frank does not figure this out. <laughs> and Frank does. Um, and so, yeah, it's like these two forces of like, it's not good versus evil, but it's like authenticity versus not. Integrity versus not. What's the opposite of integrity? You know, it's it's when you, it's like you think of your typical politicians. That's who he is. Like yeah. whenever you think of a politician, like not in a film sense, but like in real life, like you just think of people who 
they'll do whatever they can to get a vote. They'll do whatever they can to to use their power to get what they want. And it's about them, not anybody else. Like exactly. it's not about the people they serve. It's only about them and them wanting power. And um, yeah, so that's Chalmers, who obviously has to, in the end of the movie, get into a car that's with a bumper sticker that says "Support your local police," which is ironic. That was funny. And the whole movie like trying to thwart them. Um, but yeah, he, he's such a dick. He's just so awful. I mean, I wrote down their final exchange. When he represents, I think, as the audience, we want to be Bullet. Like, maybe we aren't, but we want to be. And so when he stands up to Chalmers, that feels like us, us little people who've always wanted to stand up to that douchebag who's, you know, blackmailing and wrong and being like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. When he stands up to him, we're like, yes! We want to do that too, and we probably won't in real life, but we want to. Even though we're all, you're also kind of worried for him because you don't want him to like lose his job or get screwed over. Yeah, although I do love the way that his boss supports him. I was like, that's pretty cool because his boss had integrity too, and they show you Chalmers' lack of integrity in several ways. He will do whatever he can at any cost to get his star witness in court so he can say to everybody, I didn't lie. I really had a star witness, everybody. It's all about me. So it's like the captain's day off and he's going to church with his family and he's like threatening him in front of his family at church. And you're like, dude, it's not, why are you doing this? Why are you serving in papers? It's Sunday, let him have a day off, come on. I thought Robert Vaughn played that character really well um, because you really don't like him you really don't like him, but he's not somebody who's over the top. He always maintains a very like even keel uh, dialogue. Like even when he threatens people, it's just, it's like almost like psychotic in a way of like, just he does it so even keel. Well, he's always like trying to force things. He'll be like, you're going to do this. And Steve McQueen will just like look at him and like walk away. <laughs> you know, so yeah, it's like yeah. the thing that all of us want to do, especially because he's wrong half the time. Also, there's like an idea of like, the cops are playing it by the book, but they're also not. There, There's this line where his captain says to him after, you know, Johnny Ross dies and things have gone wrong. His boss says, play it by the book from now on. And he says, he meaning bullet, he says, does Chalmers run this case or do I? And his boss says, all I'm interested in is results. Do whatever you think is best. <laughs> so... I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's giving him a little a little slack here. He's giving him a little leeway. Chalmers is always trying to get like a, a rise out of him a little. After Johnny Ross gets shot, he's like, you blew it. Chalmers says that to him. And Steve McQueen's like, you believe what you want. You work your side of the street, I'll work mine. So it's like, he doesn't feel like he has to, because if it was me in that position, I'd be like, you're wrong and this is why, A, B, C. But he doesn't do that. <laughs> He's just yeah. like, dude, I see who you are. You're scum. You stay over there. I'm going to stay over here. And then we get to the best interaction of all, which is their final interaction. Oh, I did write down the other line, too. Chalmers is like, I demand that signed statement now. Steve McQueen looks at him and goes, excuse me, and walks by him. It's great. That was great. I really liked that. He literally just walked right by him. Didn't even. It's like he barely even acknowledged he was there. Yeah. And Chalmers never admits he's wrong, even though he's constantly wrong. McQueen is like, you sent us the wrong guy, Mr. Chalmers. And not, he like will never admit he's wrong. And he will always be like, um, so this is what I need. You guys are going to do exactly what I need, right? And you're like, ugh. Okay, so at the very end, somehow Chalmers knows that McQueen is at the airport and he's going to get the real Johnny Ross. So of course he shows up and he's like, He's still my witness. And McQueen is like, look, Chalmers, 
let's understand each other. I don't like you. And you're like, ha ha ha, yeah. And then Chalmers is like, come on now. Don't be naive, Lieutenant. We both know how careers are made. Integrity is something you sell the public. Ooh, that's like his t-shirt statement. And then McQueen responds with, you sell whatever you want, but don't sell it here tonight. And then Chalmers says, Frank, we must all compromise. And Frank goes, bullshit. Get the hell out of here now. And that's like the most he loses his temper with Chalmers yeah. ever. And it's great. So yeah, he just tells him off in the way that we all want to tell him off. I don't think I read any of that correctly, but it was a very satisfying moment. That one it was very similar to that. It's a great ending. So anyway, yeah, Chalmers is just the worst and represents everything scummy and sleazy and awful. And Bullet's like fighting for integrity and doing the right thing. So yeah, and that's yeah. why he doesn't like him because he sees through him. And we all do too, but you're right. He plays it really well because he's so, he's like a little snake. He's so calm about all of his awfulness. And I think it takes a lot of integrity to know like somebody who really could, like if, if you don't get things done at the speed that you need to get them done at, he's probably fired. I mean, he probably loses his job because the senator's going to, you know, he, I mean, he already, already threatened his job at one point. Yeah. And if he didn't get it done, he would have been screwed. Which is funny because, again, the senator, if he was a senator, we don't know what he is. He wasn't doing his own job. He was the one that messed up. But he will take no responsibility for that because it will make him look bad. Always blame somebody else, you know? I'm glad that he, he gets his in the end. I'm glad that Bullet catches who he needs to catch. And I hope it all works out. He doesn't get his witness. And I am curious to see how that will play out in the future. Yeah. Did they make a Bullet too? There was a movie like Chasing Bullet. Wait, let's look it up. Was this a movie where they make a big deal about like the bullet car? Like the car is like put on display in different places or like is the car a big deal like that they put on display at a museum somewhere? Actually, it is a big deal. It is. So they kind of mentioned this on the TCM thing and I looked into it. So, okay. Steve McQueen wanted to buy the car. The Ford Mustang, uh, what kind of car is it? 1968 Ford Mustang GT? Is that what it is? So of the two cars, one was damaged and I think got scrapped. Like one was really badly damaged and I think they scrapped it. But some sources say that they didn't and it was just thought to be scrapped, but I don't know. And then uh, the other car kept being sold to individual buyers and Steve McQueen tried unsuccessfully to own it. He did not end up owning it though he did own like a hundred cars or some insane number like that. Um, but it ended up being passed to private owners and I guess like six years ago, the guy that owned it, it was just like sitting in his garage in Tennessee. <laughs> And so he called the Ford Motor Company and was like, hey, I think I've got the bullet car. What do I do with it? <laughs> so it's like in some sort of famous car registry. And you know it's the bullet car because apparently there were like camera mounts welded in. Like you could see where the weldings were. And there's like a Warner Brothers sticker, a parking sticker on it. Um, oh. So it is like the bullet car. I was going to say, I didn't know all that, but I feel like I heard like it was on display or something a number of years ago. I feel that could be wrong. sad that Steve McQueen never owned it. That would have been cool if he did. Because he put that car on the map. You think if he wanted it, like he would have gotten it at some point. All right. So one more thing I want to talk about before we move on. Something else that I think is quite cool about this movie is that, well, it's cool, but it's also, we're going to modern lens it. They use racism as a plot point for showing who a bad character is. Because this film came out in 1968. Like, the civil rights movement had happened only 
what, like five years before and was still happening. You know what I mean? Like, it's insane <laughs> that it was happening this late. But like, yeah, civil rights movement just happened. And so the character of the black doctor, who's like very good at his job, they show us that Bullet is a good person and good character because of the way he treats a person of color, which is like, again, I guess fucked up a little bit in the modern lens, but still for the time, the fact that like, Steve McQueen is seeing him as his equal, talking to him as his equal. And when they create the plan together, he's like, look, I want to take full responsibility for this. If this goes awry, I, I will lose my job. I, nothing will happen to you, right? So um, when they're doing like the, I'll lose the charts thing, because he's like, right. look, I don't want you to get in trouble. They collaborate together to find a solution, which is how they get to the missing chart thing. Um, but he treats like the black doctor like he should treat any human, which is with kindness and decency and respect. Whereas Chalmers, he's um, nice to Dr. Willard to his face, but the second he thinks Dr. Willard can't hear him, he's like, I don't want that guy to be Johnny Ross's doctor. He's just, uh, he's too young. He's not experienced enough. And they're like, he's our best doctor on staff. And they're like, I don't care. I want this doctor instead. And so they, they purposely put in a moment between um, the actor whose name, by the way, so the guy that plays Dr. Willard is Georg Stanford Brown. Um, he was in Roots. He was in um, Stir Crazy. He was on Hill Street Blues for a while. So he's the actor that plays Dr. Willard. Um, and he's like, they're making an issue about like him being the only person of color at this hospital because you can clearly see that like all of his other staff mates are white. And um, they have him and Bullet overhear that conversation together and look at each other. And it looks as if to say, like, Georg Stanford Brown is saying to him, like, do you see what the bullshit that I have to put up with, like, as a black man in the system? And Frank Bullet, you see him kind of going like, yeah, that's fucked up. I don't like that that's happening. And I'm sorry that's happening to you. So you see that interaction between the two of them. And the fact that it's made to make the bad guy look bad, like, look, the bad guy is racist because racism is bad <laughs> and the good guy is not racist. And yet the good guy is a cop. So that's like a whole other layer. Anyway, I'm just saying I like that the plot point was put in there to make like, yeah, if you're a racist, you're not a good character here. You're a bad guy. Yeah. So I like that the movie does make that point. Yeah. To have a plot point where you know like who you can kind of tell who the bad guys are, because I think even at the beginning of the movie with Walter, like, I don't think you necessarily know he's gonna be a slimy bad guy like you think he probably will be but i think as you watch the movie you can tell like yeah this guy just the way he treats people the way he was treating that doctor the fact that they needed he needed to bring in his own doctor or i, I think that was what he said or something to that effect like when clearly you already had one well and they show chalmers only talking to the higher ups like he doesn't want to talk to the nurse he wants to talk to her supervisor right you know he's a snob he thinks that other people who are not in their highest position are below him and bullet is the opposite right bullet is part of the layman he talks to everybody and connects with everybody and sees them as equals right and that's why everyone wants to work with him that's why he has an informant right because the informant gives him information and he's like, look, I'll, I'm gonna try to do something for you too. Who do you want me to try to help you get out of jail that you don't think belongs there, right? Like he's got integrity with like all kinds of people. Did we ever get closure on that by the way? Did they ever bring that up again? No, but we know that because Bullet has integrity, he probably will try to get the friend out who was only there for theft, right? Right, yeah, <laughs> three, three to five I think. Plus Bullet stole too, Bullet stole a paper. He's not a, you know, he does right. shit like that too, which you're kind of like, well, your cop abusing your power a little bit, but also it is just like what? How much was a paper? Five cents? I don't know. Yeah. Like I was kind of wondering about that, like why he felt he had to steal the paper. Well, because he needed the newspaper, but he didn't have the change. Oh, I feel like we shouldn't go through this entire episode without at least mentioning that Robert Duvall was in this movie. Yeah. 
Oh, so that's the other thing. He like gives Robert Duvall a really good tip and is nice to him. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, Robert Duvall randomly in this film plays a cab driver with a really fun bobblehead. It reminded me of Ocean's Eleven, actually. You know how Ocean's Eleven has like the pine thing in the car? Yeah. The pine scented thing, so you know it's the same car. I yeah. like that they made the doggy bobblehead. Like that's how we know we're in the same taxi. It's very distinct. Um, very distinct. And we don't see his face at first. We see through just the eyes through the rearview mirror. There's a lot of rearview mirror acting happening throughout the film. But yeah, young Robert Duvall, looking cool, being yeah. good at his job, <laughs> just driving a taxi around and remembering things, a lot of things. Yeah. He remembers this random fare who had a bunch of change to make two calls, and one of them was long distance because he has all the change. Very observant, Robert Duvall. Best taxi driver he could have gotten. Yeah. Pre-Godfather Robert Duvall, post-To Kill a Mockingbird Robert Duvall. Yes. Right between there. Yeah. I do also really just want to talk about Steve McQueen because he's, there's so much going on there. Let me tell you a little bit about Steve McQueen. Absolutely. All right. Steve McQueen was born March 24th, 1930. You may know him as the King of Cool. Some people compare him to Paul Newman, but I don't think that's a fair comparison. Yes, they are both blonde haired. Yes, they both have blue eyes. Yes, they are both sexy, but they're very, very different. Please do not compare the two. Thank you says the biggest Paul Newman fan. <laughs> <laughs> so he's famous uh, because of his like anti-hero persona during the height of 60s counterculture. Um, he came from like a very like difficult background. He, so he was born to a single parent. His mom never married his dad. And his dad was a stunt flyer in a flying circus. And he didn't know his dad very well. And he ended up growing up like during the Great Depression on his um, uncle's farm with his grandparents. Like that was his family and that's where he felt comfortable. And then when he was eight, um, his mom was like, okay, I've remarried. I think I can handle having my kid, like send my kid to me. And so he lived with his mom and his stepdad, but his stepdad was incredibly abusive and would beat both him and his mom. And so he ran away at nine and started to get involved in like petty crime and gangs and stuff. And then his mom ended up like sending him back to the farm that he had grown up on. Um, but then a couple years later, she ended up divorcing that guy, married a new guy, and ended up in L.A. So she had him sent back out again. But she had also married another abusive person. So he was abused again. And um, he, he got involved with like, again, like more kind of gang related stuff. He was going down a path that wasn't super great. Also, just a side note, Steve McQueen was dyslexic and partially deaf in one ear due to a childhood infection. So um, his stepdad and his mom end up sending him to a reform school called the California Junior Boys Republic. And it ended up kind of like helping him a lot <laughs> and helping him to mature as a person um, because you kind of like had to work together to have certain privileges, you know, so it kind of like established bonding and teamwork and stuff. And um, even after he was famous, he was like involved with that school for the rest of his life. It was a quote unquote private boys school for troubled adolescents. Um, and there were some random facts that I need to get confirmed that are just out there on the internet about him that were like, after this school, he might've worked in a brothel and he might've gotten in trouble in the deep South and worked in a chain gang for 30 days. And I'm like, wait, can we verify that? Are these real? What? So I don't know if that's true. Is there a way to verify that? Just saying, that's what's on the internet. So I don't know. When he was 17, he got his mom's permission because he wasn't 18 to join the Marines. He was demoted to private 
like seven times. He was always like disobedient. He could not like follow the orders. He was insubordinate. But he ended up like growing up there and he was honorably discharged in 1950 because of the GI Bill after the Marines, after he leaves the Marines. And he also feels like it was a really good time in his life that helped him grow up. Um, so after that, because of the GI Bill and the money he got from that, he started to study acting. And he worked with um, Meisner and he worked with Uta Hagen. He's also racing for money on weekends. So he's like honing his racing skills and honing his acting skills. He ends up getting his Broadway debut on a show called Hatful of Rain with Ben Gazzara. So, you know, no small shakes. Um, and then heads out to LA at 25. Some movies you may know him from are, well, one of his early films was The St. Louis Bank Robbery. Oh, and The Blob. He was the lead in The Blob. That was another early film for him. But um, his TV role on a show called Wanted, Dead or Alive, from 1958 to 1961 was what made him famous, like a household name, which propelled him into getting movie roles and superstardom. Um, so he was also in The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, The Cincinnati Kid, The Thomas Crown Affair, The Getaway, Papillon, and The Towering Inferno. Those are some of his most famous films. Um, Bullet was his personal favorite film, though. And he helped produce it, so there you go. Or he did produce it. He didn't help produce it. He produced it. Um, he was married three times to, I think her name is Neely Adams. It's either Neely or Neil. I think it's Neely. Neely Adams. And then, famously, he was married to Allie McGraw next. They met on the set of The Getaway, and they fell in love and got married. And she was apparently the love of his life, people say. But I guess their marriage wasn't that great. I don't know. And then, before he passed away, he passed away quite young of mesothelioma at, like, 50 years old, um, just shortly after marrying a woman named Barbara Minty, who said he became an evangelical Christian at the end of his life, which I don't know if that's true or not either. She said it, though. Doesn't really track, but who knows. Uh, he was also arrested in 1972 for a DUI in Alaska. He's just, he's got all these crazy things about him online, you know? That one's true, though, because we've got the, the mug shots, so he really did get a DUI. Which is not in great. Alaska, of all places. In Alaska, yeah. But that's, that's Steve McQueen in a nutshell. Super interesting. I will say, you, you referenced that he had uh, loss of hearing in one of his ears. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was the problem with the sound that he had in the movie? Ha! I can't hear it well, so you're going to have to go back and redo it, sound guy. Enjoy that nausea from those San Francisco hills. Great point, David. I don't know. Also, I want to mention Peter Yates was the director. He's a British director. This was his first American film. He was chosen for this based on his work on the film Robbery, which had a car chase. It was a great gamble. It paid off. Some of his other films were The Hot Rock, The Dresser, Breaking Away, The Deep, The Suspect. And one I just really want to see now that I know it exists, but I've never heard of it. There's one that has two names. Some people call it It All Came True, and some people call it Curtain Call. And it's about two ghosts played by Michael Caine and Maggie Smith that haunt James Spader in an apartment and try to set him up with people. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I need to see this. That actually sounds great. How <laughs> they've never heard of it. Marsha Gay Harden's in it. It's like, ah, oh, great cast, solid premise. Yes, I want to watch them as ghosts setting him up with people. Why would I not want to watch? I think they're actor ghosts, too. That makes it even better. I think they're former actors. That's awesome. In their life. And he, I also want to mention Peter Yates was nominated for Best Director for Breaking Away and The Dresser. Um, and then also we mentioned Jacqueline Bissett. She's famous for Bullet, Murder on the Orient Express, 
Um, she was in Two for the Road. She was in the joke version of Casino Royale, the David Niven one, where she played Miss Good Thighs. <laughs> um, and she was in Airport, V Who Came to Dinner. She was in The Deep. Again, that was uh, Peter Yates' film. And then I want to mention she got this film because she was in a film called The Detective with Frank Sinatra um, just before this. And she got that part because Mia Farrow was supposed to be in it with Frank Sinatra. That was his wife at the time, but their marriage was falling apart. So she got the role instead of, you know, Mia Farrow, who was supposed to play it. And that kind of made her career and set her up to get this film. Um, and Frank Sinatra was said to have gotten uh, Steve McQueen into his first early film, like into a popular early film that he was in because he had gotten in a fight with Sammy Davis Jr., which is weird that Steve McQueen is playing a Sammy Davis Jr. part. I, that's weird. Kind of. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Jacqueline Bissett was a model and a ballet dancer before she became an actor. And that tracks. I think you can see that. Not surprised to hear that, just based on what we saw. Uh, we got Robert Duvall as the cab driver. Georg Stanford Brown as Dr. Willard. Uh, Don Gordon, who plays Del Getty. He's great as Del Getty. That one line he's got where he's, like, interviewing the one witness. And the witness is like, uh, <laughs> am I doing all right? And he looks at him and he goes, I never had it so good. That was funny. And then um, Robert Vaughn as Chalmers, who we mentioned. And we talked about like just the subterfuge and the subtlety of this piece, the details, the way it looks. Oh my God, it's gorgeous. So pretty looking. So creamy, the colors. Yeah, so I think we covered the film, you know? It's a really cool film with really cool style and I like it. It's a fun movie. Yeah, I would 100% recommend this movie. I thought it was uh, really entertaining. I thought it was yeah. really well done. Like you said, even just for the chase scene alone. I mean, the chase yeah. scene is really cool. It's really well done. It, it just feels very authentic. Unlike, I feel like some chase scenes, even in today's, you know, world, like all these years later, for whatever reason, this one had more grit. I don't know, grit, maybe grit's the right word. It just had more yeah. substance to it. And I, I thought it was very a very suspenseful car chase. It wasn't just a car chase for the sake of a car chase. Yeah. It, it, was very, it was very suspenseful. It had like meaning behind it. And I enjoyed it. I totally agree. One of the scenes that sticks out to me is the scene where he's standing by the side of the road looking out at the water, but it's like also industrialized where he's talking to Jacqueline Bissett after she just saw um, the murder. And she looks at him and she says, uh, you know, you're living in a sewer, Frank. How can you be part of it without becoming more and more callous? And I just thought that was a really interesting question that like never gets answered. <laughs> I feel like yeah. that's the question he's grappling with as he's washing his hands at the end, like looking in the mirror being like, oh, am I becoming callous? <laughs> like, am I part of the sewer? Integrity is so much to him. So having integrity, but like being in the world of the sewer, like how do you, how do you have both those things? How do you not turn to rock? Like, like how do you not pull a Michael Corleone, <laughs> you know, Yeah. And, and live in that world? Yeah, I'd be curious to know what, what he ended up doing with his life, if he stayed with what he was doing his whole life or if he ended up giving it up at some point. I think he sticks with homicide because I think he loves it. In my dream world, since I'm a rom-com kind of lady, I think he finds a balance. I think he he figures it out and can have it all. <laughs> I think he can have a wonderful relationship with Jacqueline Bissett and still be a homicide cop yeah homicide he can do it all and i he don't see do why he can't do it you know once it's been pointed out to him maybe it will help him realize how he can manage both things <laughs> well the next he goes starts going to therapy and he starts having clear boundaries like he's not gonna work on the weekends you know that's what i see yeah i can see why he turned down bullet too we, that's not proven we don't know that we don't know that now it is time for the modern lens portion of this show 
I mean, we discussed like the racism, but it's racism is told like racism as a plot point, making the good character be like, oh, he's not racist and the bad character be racist. Like that is a plot point, but that's also not totally fair to people of color at all. <laughs> they were using that character's blackness as a pawn in a white person's story and telling everything from a white person's perspective and showing us like, look how good this white person is for doing like, for being nice to a black person, which is like, that shouldn't be like lauded. That should just be normal. 100%. Um, yeah. So I, again, I do like that they had that moment of the doctor being like, yeah, this is what I deal with and this is fucked up. So I feel like they called it in that way, but yeah. yeah and then again, the feminism, like obviously her role could be bigger. There could be more women present. There could be more people of color present. Yeah, I think it was essentially like her role really helped. You don't have to be into like a woman just because she's hot. Um, but like she actually has brains and she has substance and she, you know, is normal and she's somebody who can more humanize and, yeah. and bring the best out of somebody. I think there's like the other side of that, which like people could be like, Steve McQueen's cool because he's having sex with a really hot girl. And, you know, like that's all that they take away from this. And I'm like, oh, I hope you would take something deeper away than that this looks like a relation, like a budding relationship <laughs> that could be something meaningful. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so there's that. Some other stuff that doesn't hold up, obviously, is like the portrayal of cops and their relationship to all kinds of people. Um, like in this film specifically, he like talks with the person of color, like he's talking to the doctor, asking him to go on a limb for him and is like, look, I've got your back. I don't know in today's world, I don't know how comfortable that character would feel doing that. And obviously it only portrays cops in like a perfect light. Like they're not, um, there's no crooked cops. The only crooked person here is a politician, but that's not what this movie is. No, I mean, obviously they had the crooked politician. You're right though. All the cops seem to have a lot of integrity in this film. Which is good. That'd be great. When I was watching that, you know, the scene with the luggage when they're going through the luggage, the back of my mind, I was kind of thinking to myself like, I wonder how often this happens and like stuff gets planted or stuff gets put in there that shouldn't get be it shouldn't be in there in order to, like, to get their their perp or whatever oh i was thinking about them taking stuff i was like i wonder how much stuff gets taken because it's cool i feel like oh it's a nice purse i want to give it to my wife or like i was thinking about that oh i love that we we're both thinking about ways that they could be corrupted <laughs> and i'm not saying like all cops are bad or anything i'm just saying based on what we've seen there appears to be a ton of racism in the police system and maybe it's different. These guys are detectives, not like on the beat cops, I guess. But still, you know, yeah. they're pretty progressive for homicide cops. Um, yeah. I'll say that. They were out to shoot pretty quickly in this movie, too. Although they were being shot at, so I can't blame them for that. But Although he was trapped in that little box. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Where was he going to go? Yeah. <laughs> Although they, I think they knew he had a gun, so they, they had to be yeah. uh, careful there. There were a lot of people around. Actually, that's one of the final things that doesn't really hold up with our modern lens is like all of the airport stuff that you mentioned earlier. The no smoking on the planes, like none of the security, <laughs> the guns in the airport, the people running on the tarmac, none of that. Nope, you'll never find that today. And he really almost gets away. Like Johnny Ross, if he kept running into the fields, he could have gotten away maybe. I don't, I mean, the, the, I actually one of the other things I was wondering watching it was like, you'd think they'd have like, like somebody would have called like, and they just had the perimeter surrounded from the yeah. airport. Like you're not leaving here. Like you're not getting out. Well, I was wondering where the airspace ended. Cause I was like, do they have like fences around the airspace or is it just open land? Could he like really run away? They, it was hard to tell because it was dark out. That was part of, probably one of the smart parts of that scene is they filmed it when it was dark. So you don't know how far he could have gone or where he could have gone to. And he almost gets Steve McQueen. He really does. He gets the blue light in front of Steve McQueen, which saves Steve McQueen's life. No, that was not Steve. That was not uh, Lieutenant Bullet's best moment. Just kind of standing in the open, looking around. 
But again, he was on that plane with all those people and alerted the perp. The perp saw him yeah. and had ample time because he didn't ask anybody to sit down. <laughs> did Did the perp know who he was? He clearly, he did. I don't know how he did, though. Now that you mention it, how did he know Bullet? Maybe he just figured that's why they were being stopped. And he knew anybody that looks. Yeah, he saw just... someone walking towards him. I was trying to figure that one out, though, because I was like, does he, does he know him? Was I supposed to know about this, like some interaction beforehand? Or... When he left the hotel room after killing um, Resnick's wife, who was also Resnick, we see Jacqueline Bissett see him. So he would only potentially see her, but he never sees Bullet. He must have just made the assumption. We're going to head into the double feature portion of this podcast. If you like this movie, maybe check out these other films. So I feel like, obviously, if you want to compare car chases, go watch The French Connection. Um, it has another car chase, although technically it's a, it's a car chase, but it's a car chasing a train. I like this one better. I think this one's cooler. That's just my opinion. Plus, the French connection is too much of one view, and it literally makes me feel nauseous. So that's that's what I think. But I know that a lot of people disagree with me. Uh, so French connection, um, another obvious Steve McQueen one. I actually don't love this movie, and a lot of people disagree with me. The Getaway is a Steve McQueen film. It's where he met Ali McGraw. Um, they, it's like bank job gone wrong. They're on the run. Got to get to Mexico. Having marital troubles. Um, I feel like it's so, as a woman, it's real hard to watch because she can not do anything right and he's constantly blaming her and their marriage looks really toxic and I don't, I don't, I don't know about their marriage in real life. I'm just saying the, the relationship on film. Um, it's a Sam Peckinpah film. A lot of guys like it. It's too misogynistic for me. I'm sorry. It's really hard to watch for me. Another one you could watch is The Hot Rock, which, uh, Peter Yates also directed and Frank Keller did, edit, he edited. Um, but it's a Robert Redford film that William Goldman wrote, and it's kind of like a comedic heist gone wrong. Like, they keep trying to get this, <laughs> this, I can't remember, I think it's a diamond. I don't remember. I saw it a little while ago. They're trying to get this thing, and they, they keep messing up, and they keep not being able to get it. So it, it's like, I think it feels like a comedic kind of version of a heist film. And then uh, there's so many more. Wow. The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 people figuring things out as they go feels very realistic it's got a lot of suspense walter Matthau's delightful uh clute also similar vibes but a stronger female role <laughs> uh cool hand luke as we mentioned lalo schifrin did the score for both we got a very cool guy who won't conform to the system um i wrote what's up doc uh it's a comedy that also has a chase scene in san francisco but it's a comedic chase scene so just watch the two chase scenes and delight in them. I wrote The Conversation, which to me is also like subtle subterfuge. And it's like things taken a different way than you think. And it looks really pretty. It's like a gorgeous on film and no way out because of the whole Sidney Poitier racist aspect where he's a doctor and people are racist to him. And then um, Dirty Harry. That's all the stuff I wrote. That's it? Just those few. Just a couple films. Boy, that sounds, that doesn't sound like a, a double feature. That sounds like a quintuple feature. I like associative links and associative trails. I really delight in them. And I bet other people are out there that also delight in them too, you know? It's just a fun game to play of like, oh, what goes with this? It's like a match game. No, it's always good to put movies out there. I mean, that's, you know, because this really was a very good movie. And, and um, you know, I think some of these movies that you mentioned 
Uh, I'm a little embarrassed. I still haven't seen the French Connection, so I'll have Don't to check that out. Don't be embarrassed. Well, you know, I won like Best Picture, I think, a number of years ago. I've just never uh, checked it out. In 1971, I want to say, I think I won. Mm-hmm. William Friedkin directed. French Connection was a movie that I felt like I had to see because it was like Best Picture and whatever, which I was yeah. a little surprised Bullet didn't get more nominations. Yeah, I'm surprised by that too. Because it, again, it's like really gorgeously done. Because it's not even, it's like a solid film, but it, it looks stunning. It's got like the, again, I cannot say it enough. The details are gorgeous. Yeah. And it's this beautiful, creamy toned, rosy colored film. <laughs> I love it. Soaking it. You get to Pretty Woman from here. You can see the connection. <laughs> I can see the connection. Um. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, David, thanks for being on the show and for enjoying this film. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I really enjoy it. It's I've never not been delighted by it. Like when I watch it, every single time I enjoy it, which I don't know that you can say about every film, you know? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you could have me on for this one because I also really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm glad I got the opportunity to, to watch it. It gave me a reason to watch it because it was fantastic. It really was. Oh, also, you'll notice I didn't put the Thomas Crown Affair as a part of the double feature. And again, it's it's the misogyny. It really physically hurts me. The fact that the whole movie is just to like put that woman in her place. It physically pains me. So... I did not purposely put that as a double feature. That's also why I haven't seen a lot of Steve McQueen films is because I feel like in the past, I have viewed him as being slightly misogynistic and macho, and I don't dig that. That is not my vibe. It, like, it just hurts me. So the fact that I watched this and it wasn't like that at all was just a sheer delight. So it makes me want to watch more of his films now that I've seen this side of him. Did he do more stuff like Bullet or did he do more stuff like The Getaway? David, I'm going to find out when I watch it. <laughs> So far, he's got two on the getaway side. So far, Thomas Granover and Getaway are pretty misogynistic, but Bullet gives me hope, you know? All right. Yeah. All right. All right. We can see what else he did. Next up, The Great Escape. All right. Well, David, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you bringing me on again. Duh. You're the best. And uh, we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was David Greenfield. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>